0: Listen production.
1: Hello, my beautiful friends. Welcome back to Come Out Wherever You Are, a podcast about coming out told by the people who have done it. It is a Wednesday, but we're going to be doing things a little bit differently today, okay? Normally, we just have a little chat with someone about their coming out experience. But today is a very important today. Today we're going to be celebrating Intersex Awareness Day. And because it's Intersex Awareness Day, what can we do? We can raise some awareness, we can educate ourselves. And that is what we are doing today. Today we have brought on Cody Smith to the show. I'm very excited to have you here. Can you just introduce yourself and tell us how we found you, what you do for a living, and uh, then we can jump right into some of these questions.
0: Hi. So, yes, um, my name's Cody. I'm the Senior Project Officer for Intersex Human Rights Australia. I was born with intersex variation, but um, I'm non-binary, agenda gender and I use they, them pronouns. I currently live in Ngunnawal country and... Um, Yeah, Intersex Awareness Day. It's the big one on our calendar every year. It's um, exciting to be here to answer what questions people have.
1: So let's start really simple um, with a very broad question that probably doesn't have a simple answer, which is, what does intersex mean?
0: Well, you say that, but we do have um, a fairly straightforward working definition, um, which is intersex people have innate sex characteristics, that don't fit medical and social norms for female or male bodies. That creates risks or experiences of stigma, discrimination, and harm. And basically what that means is if you think of like male and female bodies as being like Lego models, mm. the Lego pieces are what we refer to as sex characteristics. And intersex people are just born with a few Lego pieces different in their model. Like they still have a male or female model, but how some of the pieces might get uh, uh, might, might be different from how we typically understand a male or female Lego model to be.
1: I love that. That is really easy for me to wrap my head around. It also feels like a very easy way to explain it to say my own children. Uh, sometimes when we're talking to younger people, we feel that we have to like muddy things down. But in this unique case, it actually is really easy to grab onto. It's a good segue because my next thought is, that's something I can understand. How common is this? How frequent is it? How many people are intersex?
0: Well, it's really it, that's a somewhat more difficult question, actually, mm. because intersex is an umbrella term. It refers to about 40 different diagnoses. And so when you're looking at those particular diagnoses, you have different rates for them. So some might be one in a 1,000 live births. Some might be one in 20,000 live births. I mean, I have my own diagnosis described to me as one in a million. Um, wow. But the thing about um, all of that is is that if you take into consideration everyone who has a variation in sex characteristics, everyone who sits underneath this umbrella, the most commonly cited statistic is about 1.7% of the population. But then again, there's also some variability because people find out they're intersex at different stages in their life. It's not always obvious from birth. And there's also some uh, more contended um, definitions. So... Uh, for instance, there is some debate as to whether or not polycystic ovarian syndrome is included under the intersex umbrella. And if it is, it would actually make our statistics significantly larger. But I, I think for most common definitions of intersex and most common, uh, commonly cited
1: statistics of intersex, it's not. Got it. Wow. Okay. This is extremely useful. The natural next question I have then is, you've said there are multiple different intersex variations. Some of those would be much more obvious for a doctor to identify just based off of physical appearance. Those are the ones that I think the average person probably has heard of before. But because you've said there are so many, is it fair to say that there are some that would, A, require a more invasive uh, diagnosis procedure? And two, is it possible that some people just never, ever, ever get diagnosed, but they are intersex?
0: Uh, Both of those things are possible. So um, we sort of have an idea of three stages of life where intersex people are commonly diagnosed. Um, In infancy, there has to be like physically visible characteristics. Um, In fact, actually, prenatally, there are some genetic tests that do pick up on chromosomal variations. So a common chromosomal variation is Klinefelter's, which presents as XXY. and that can be picked up uh, with the same genetic tests that are used for um, uh, testing for uh, Down syndrome, I think. Mm. Um, so, but obviously, we don't do genetic tests on every child that's born um, to figure out whether or not they're intersex. Um, so then there has to be some sort of physical tra- trait, trait, um, and only some types of intersex variation present with. Um, like um, a difference in genitals that is apparent at birth. Much, much later on in life, uh, when a child starts going through puberty, uh, sometimes unexpected things can happen. Like puberty might happen uh, sooner than expected. It might not happen at all. Or it might happen in a way that's completely unexpected where um, suddenly the body starts responding to testosterone and they undergo a masculinizing puberty, even though... They grew up with very feminine characteristics. So, um, and then much, much, much later on in life is when someone might try to start a family. They might find out they're sterile, mm. and one of the reasons that uh, that can cause that is uh, many intersex variations um, do often cause sterility. So, but then there are people who might go through their entire lives without knowing. And certainly, um, in my work as a peer support worker, I've met people who at all ages and all stages of their life, finding out that they're intersex. Um, I once um, provided peer support to someone who found out at the age of 70, um, their sister told them on her deathbed, which um, was just a hugely moving story, but it was sort of like the missing jigsaw um, puzzle. It was just like the missing piece of the jigsaw that explained all these different circumstances throughout their life.
1: Yeah. Next question: Are intersex surgeries legal in Australia?
0: Uh, yes. So, and this this is um this gets a little bit complicated because obviously we have uh, conflicting sides of the argument where doctors will suggest that parents pressure them into normalisation. Parents suggest that they get pressured by doctors. Mm. And then we also get the argument that there's um, more regulations these days, that uh, deferring surgery is more common. Uh, but at the end of the day, we do see Medicare numbers around um, particular medical procedures um, that are done to children. So when you see a Medicare code for like um, hypospadias repair on a child under five or uh, like labioplasty on a child under five, like that's that's not happening to endosex children, that's happening to intersex children. Mm. So it, it is perfectly legal. Um, but I guess like one of the big questions that we face is like, uh, where does the pressure for surgery come from? And um I, I guess that's one of the big reasons why we gravitate towards legislation as the important protection is that um we kind of need to take the back and forth out of the equation and just protect the rights of intersex children.
1: The next question I have is maybe an obvious segue. And the question is, do some intersex people choose to have surgeries? And the reason I said it was an interesting question is because the word choose is in there, but I'd like to focus based off what you've just said on adults. So adults who are finding out this information, who can consent to doing surgeries uh, if they wanted to. Is that something that intersex people will choose to do?
0: Uh, Certainly, yes, and for all sorts of um, reasons. Sometimes it's about managing um, health problems that may or may not be caused by the particular intersex variation. Uh, Sometimes it can just be about um, gender affirmation. And actually, accessing gender affirmation as an intersex person can be a lot harder because we don't necessarily experience Gender dysphoria in the same way that a transgender person traditionally does. Mm. Um, and therefore, when you have pathways that are created specifically for transgender gender affirmation, they're not necessarily pathways uh, that are accessible to intersex people. So uh, I think that also raises like one of, uh, one of the issues we have is that um, when intersex issues are poorly understood or when uh, like intersex needs are poorly understood in our community. There's not really mechanisms that help pick up the slack elsewhere.
1: Wow. Well, I guess then I have to ask the exact same question worded differently, which is, do some intersex people have surgeries chosen for them?
0: Yes. So um, again, like uh, often when intersex traits are discovered in an individual, it's when they're still a minor. And Mm. usually at that stage in their life, their parents have a lot of say over uh, what sort of healthcare options they are to pursue. And unfortunately, uh, there's sort of two aspects to this. There's the idea of unconsented medical intervention, um, which is just sort of um, medical intervention that's agreed to on part of the child. But there's also uh, this idea of coerced medical intervention. It's sort of like um, uh, when I was born, I underwent uh, a number of surgeries before I turned two to correct into, or to normalize intersex traits. These are not procedures I would have consented to as an adult. Mm. Um, but the way that the, these surgeries were presented to my parents was that this is the only way you're going to have a happy, healthy, normal child, um, is you do the surgery and keep it secret uh, for the rest of their life. Uh, but it's sort of like, it's not just enough to say, you know, um, the child needs to be old enough to make decisions for themselves. It's You also have to put them in an environment where... They can disagree with doctors because doctors are such an authority. It's it's sort of like if you're 12 or 13 and your doctor says that you have to go on HRT to go through a puberty, you're not really in a position to go, well, what if I don't want to go through a feminizing puberty? What if I want something else for myself?
1: Yeah.
0: One of the big ticket sort of advocacy issues around in the intersex space is um how do we manage these conflicting um ideas around Uh, medical intervention around HRT, around surgery, around uh, dilation and various other sort of medical procedures. It's sort of like, how do we protect the consent of infants? How do we protect um, minors from coercion? And how do we create um, pathways um, where people can consent into the procedures that they want or need?
1: So I guess a follow-up question is, a parent is pressured into having a surgery on their young child is it possible that that child one will never find out about that? And is, is it possible that you could go to your deathbed and not actually ever be aware that that surgery occurred? Like when does the adult ever find out that happened to them or do they not?
0: This is a very curly question. um, because honestly, uh, for a very long time, best practice was to do the surgery and keep it secret. And, um, never tell a child they're intersex because it doesn't afford them the opportunity to feel they're abnormal Mm. but um, i can certainly uh, speak to my experience that i grew up uh, with surgical scars that i didn't didn't explain i didn't have language to even ask questions about why i had those scars i used to write stories like i have um, exercise books from when i was very very young where i wrote stories about feeling like a space alien so I've, oh, oh, I grew up knowing I felt different, but I never had an exp, uh, explanation for that until my mum sat me down at 17 and was just sort of like, "I can't let you turn 18 without under, like without you knowing that you went through this." But mm. you know, there are some some families where it just becomes this huge source of guilt and shame, and they're just never able to have that conversation, and um, it can really really isolate their child. Uh, medical records get lost like pediatric records. Um, It's pretty standard procedure for pediatric records to get destroyed a particular amount of time after someone has aged out of the pediatric system. So if um, I find out that I'm intersex at the age of 30 or something, then I'm not going to be able to get any access to those surgical records. And Mm. there's certainly some examples I can think of people where I've worked with where it seems like... um, records were maliciously destroyed in order to avoid um, accountability. Um, so yeah, like th- there are certainly contexts in which intersex is the big secret that people don't talk about. And if you have that surgery at a very young age, sometimes the only opportunity you get to know that you're intersex is because um, someone is willing to tell you that you went through that.
1: Or sure. I mean, I, I imagine a lot of people listening would put pressure on the parents. They would be angry or put blame on the parent. Uh, The way that you described your story, but also answered some of our questions, was putting more pressure, I I guess, on the doctors who are really, at that time in history, were applying a lot of pressure. You're scared. You're a first-time parent. Someone's telling you this is what you need to make sure your child's life is, quote, normal. What is happening currently to make sure that professionals are trained properly on this subject matter? Are they they learning at school how to uh, speak to parents who have these children and how to properly communicate with them about the subject?
0: I mean, this is where you get to the crux of the problem. And the reality is the intersex activist community is a small community with very limited resources, very burnt out. Um, And so, you know, we've developed midwife training, but we don't always get opportunities to present it. I've, I've spoken to groups of medical students, but I'm obviously not getting through to everyone. And it's going to take time for those medical students to then... Bring the that understanding of uh, the intersex experience into the medical practice, and um, I think like one of the things that we struggle to have a conversation about in the intersex community is that what's done to us is violent, it's traumatic, it's horrifying, but it's done out of love. It really, truly is like. Mm. Doctors considered this to be best practice because they want to produce happy, healthy children. And they have this model that is fundamentally damaging, but the intent there is to is to produce like normal, happy children. And it's a similar thing for parents, is that there's just this difficult power dynamic whereby They're scared, they're confused. The first time they found out that they're uh, about intersex is because their child's been taken away from them at at birth, just while doctors try to figure out what to tell the parents. And they're not getting information, they're not getting support, they don't know how to reach out to their social uh, social network for support because their social network doesn't have any information. And so, um, again, like when you're presented with do this to make your child happy, normal, and healthy that's the most loving thing a parent can do it's just that that process we now understand to be damaging again like we have to reconcile this understanding that um these are things that are done uh, from a place of love and good intention but they're so fundamentally harmful that um they need to be uh, addressed through legislation and through community education and we do need that like, top-down, bottom-up sort of approach where we're attacking every angle we can just to uh, fix the problem. Because again, like we bring legislation in that protects the child, yes, is, but in a very interventionary way where um, parents will still need access to peer support. And so then we need to build, build peer support structures for parents. So uh, it's a big job. <laughs> it is a very big job. <laughs> And um, over the next few years, it's going to get pretty crazy for us. But um, I don't know, at the end of the day, when I found out I was intersex, I went through a lot of emotional distress. And what got me through that was the idea that I can stop the harm that the next little Cody born doesn't need to go through the same things that I did. Oh,
1: Cody. Yes, absolutely. Wow. Is Australia progressive? In this particular discussion, are there other countries that are maybe more forward along? As I'm hearing you talk, as as a parent, I'm obviously like, wait a second, uh, this didn't come up during my parenting journey. But what if it had, and I didn't feel prepared, and it wasn't discussed, and I didn't even know it wasn't in any of the books that I read as a parent? And so part of me goes, okay, well, what is the Australian government doing? Are we in a good place as Aussies, or are we in a not so good place?
0: I think there's forward momentum right across the world. Um, and the thing about that is it's very, very hard to measure jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Um, there are places in the world that already have legislation to protect intersex children from surgery. Mm. Uh, these are places like Malta, uh, Tamil Nadu, uh, Iceland, and a couple of others. It, it's I find it hard to remember them all but we also have statistics from these countries that suggest that the, these protective measures haven't been completely protective. Okay. So we do have some uh, legislative proce- uh, processes happening in Australia at the moment, particularly in the ACT in Victoria. And um, they've brought in much more community involvement, much more community consultation, and our hope is that it's going to produce better legislation. We also are forward-thinking in some other ways in terms of um, constructing the Darlington Statement, which is a human rights document that recognises the issues of intersex people in Australia. Mm. Because the legislation is sort of our big-ticket item, there's a lot of focus on it, and there's a lot of other issues around it that get neglected, such as uh, participation in sports, um, genetic screening in IVF. Mm. And um, uh, we have... um, Unfortunately, high rates of um, underemployment and poverty, um, largely due to sort of higher rates of high school dropouts. So, if you think if you think about it this way, you get diagnosed as intersex. In puberty, you have to go through a whole bunch of medical appointments. You may have to get surgery, and then recover from that. You suddenly lose a lot of time at school. You find it hard to catch up, and you drop out. Mm. And then that has like knock-on consequences for the rest of your life. So, there are supports like that that are needed, um, sort of like at the school level. And there's also because again, uh, intersex is an umbrella term that covers a wide range of different. Um, sort of intersex variations. Some of those are actually comorbid with learning and developmental uh, difficulties such as ADHD and autism. So sometimes um, students need more support around those sorts of things.
1: Wow. As someone who's been lucky enough to speak to a lot of non-binary and transgender um, media personalities for this show, I am noticing an overlap in some of the issues that are presented. Really just in the last minute of us talking, participation in sports, surgeries, and government policies that are ensuring mental and physical support and health. And so, even though I feel confident with my answer, I'd, I'd love to spend some time answering for other people. What is the difference between intersex and transgender?
0: Hmm. There's overlap between the intersex and transgender community in terms of uh, issues but how we engage with those issues are different. And mm. if we think about um, intersex being about Lego pieces, being about sex characteristics, transgender and gender diversity is about identity. And so, for instance, uh, sports is a really good example of how we experience discrimination differently in the same area, and we need guidelines that support both intersex and transgender people in that um, a transgender person who has gone through gender affirmation—if uh, you're using testosterone limits in order to discriminate in your sport—a transgender woman will meet those testosterone limits quite easily. But you, what you end up with is a set of guidelines that explicitly discriminate against intersex people who may have higher amounts of testosterone, even though their body may not even process testosterone in the same uh, in the same way. And and it's sort of like it's become an issue because oftentimes where we have these uh, issues, whether we have that uh, sort of like intersectionality that needs to be considered, uh, transgender issues are given priority. So we see Mm. this with birth, deaths and marriage um, reform as well. Uh, There's a huge push to create third gender categories for birth certificates. And one of the justifications is that um, it creates a category for intersex people. But intersex people don't actually need a third category to recognize that they're intersex. Uh, the vast majority uh, of intersex people identify as cisgendered and binary so they do identify with a binary gender that's assigned to them at birth and uh, when you create a, this third sort of category intersex what you're saying is you need to be this intersex to be intersex enough for this category but wow. you're also saying that if you're not in this category and, and you are male or female then you um, you know, you can't be intersex as well. And so it disrespects their identity as well. Um, so, yeah, um, when it comes down to the differences between intersex and transgender, it's purely that physical biology versus identity. Um, and the the implications um, between each is, uh, can be quite drastic. And unfortunately, like, um, this has also had a, that dealt a lot of historical damage to the movement. Um, uh, there was a study in Belgium that showed that only 0.2% of LGBTIQ funding actually makes it to intersex-led organizations mm. or intersex um, causes, which means that um, you have these organizations that take on LGBTIQ funding but don't provide services that intersex people need. Um, this was an issue that came up with a queer counseling service. I won't mention names. They basically turned away an intersex client, and the only way they were going to provide uh, a counselor to them was because they uh, also identified as bisexual. There's no reason why they shouldn't have been able to provide that service to an intersex person.
1: Mm.
0: But um, it was sort of like them trying to acknowledge that um, their services weren't adequate for intersex people, but then creating circumstances that discriminate against an intersex person as well. So I think that's why a lot of this visibility and a lot of these conversations are really really important because we need to build service competency for intersex people as well.
1: Absolutely, and I think it's a really useful segue into a a thought and then a question and and obviously I'm not asking you to speak on behalf of the entire community even though I've just asked you about 12 questions and asked you to speak on behalf of the entire community but As a queer person who has been a member of this community, who has a podcast that speaks to all members of the LGBTQI plus community, as someone who's lived in New York City, Los Angeles, Sydney, who has gone to marches all around the country, I don't need to pretend when I say that intersex is usually represented less in those situations. Like if there's a huge pride march, there are marches where you will not even see a banner that mentions intersex on it so that's my statement is that i have observed over my lifetime of in this kind of role as an advocate a lack of, of strong representation and pride comes from that a, a space that people feel that they can step into and be a, and welcomed but my question more broadly to you is do intersex people feel welcomed in the LGBTQI plus community? I mean, you've introduced yourself to us and you have a, a bunch of beautiful labels that make you a, a part of our community in a more, I guess, powerful way because people speak a lot more right now about being non-binary. And I'm just wondering how intersex people feel.
0: Oh, it's really, really funny how you should mentioned Pride Parades. I actually remember a time where a group of us marched Mardi Gras. It was actually um, around the same time as we wrote the Darlington Statement. So... We sort of used that as an opportunity to bring people together and then uh, we marched Mardi Gras. But I actually remember watching the coverage um, the next day and on SBS and we saw the float that was in front of us and then there was a cut to a commercial or something and then we saw the float behind us.
1: No.
0: It, it just felt like such a perfect metaphor for a, sort of like the erasure that we experience. And mm. it's sort of like... Um, yeah, it, it's a challenging thing to navigate because I have these very pure statistics that say, you know, intersex people tend to be straight, tend to be binary, tend to be cisgendered. Um, and while we have that higher higher rate of intersectional queerness, like that does not represent the majority of our community. So in trying to step up and represent the community, I always have to be mindful of that. Mm. But I, I think that sometimes... People mistake that for, uh, mis- mistake that sort of um, coldness towards the community as, as sort of um, hostility. And sometimes it is. Sometimes it's that sort of minority stress. Sometimes uh, it's very hard to feel comfortable in a space that's rejecting straightness, heterosexuality, so sort of like binary, cisgender. Mm. people and sometimes sometimes people do experience natural violence in the queer community. But again, like it comes back to the question of resources. And I think that one of the things that's made me really, really effective as an advocate is being able to bridge bridge some of that gap and go to where the resources are and then carve a space out for intersex people because um what we need is representation. What we need are are, are services for us and we kind of need to go where the allies say they are and where the resources um, are, uh, should be available to us. Yes. Um, but it can be very, very hard. Um, it's certainly been an uphill battle just trying to build trust between queer services and intersex people and just saying, you know, this is a safe space where we will accept your intersexness. Mm. And this is an autonomous space where, um, like, you don't have to be queer to be here. Uh, which may sound like um, it's a bit of a conflict with uh, trying to engage with queer spaces. But uh, again, like it, it's sort of like this compulsory sense of if the typical human experience is that you have typical sex characteristics and then you have um, a sex and then a binary gender assignment and you're uh, cisgendered and then you're straight like one proceeds from the other It's when there's any kind of deviation from that sort of like um, succession that we then have this sort of uh, very disjointed community that's sort of been forced together. And I'm all, always here for the rainbow pride. I'm always here for the big old queer family. Like I've, I found my queer family in Canberra before I even knew I was intersex. Like I, I knew I was um, gay in high school and um, and when I found out I was intersex, like, um, I found a non-binary community before I actually found my intersex community. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, it's it's always been a space I feel comfortable in. But like, I I sort of understand why there are intersex people who don't feel comfortable.
1: That is an mm-hmm. unbelievable articulation to answer that question. Thank you. That really seriously. Um, as someone who has experienced just feeling different, just very broadly feeling different and searching for answers and desperate to find other people like me, I can understand and relate to a desire for other people who might not have a similar experience to me, who aren't just attracted to a different gender or multiple genders than the one that is, quote, normal, that they would seek answers. And my hope was as be- becoming a member of the queer community that I would find a bunch of other people who aren't necessarily gay, but who have also had a similar lived experience. That is not just sexual. That is also gender. And it's not just gender. And I think there's great value in all of us banding together and saying, you've struggled. I've struggled. Let's work together. You need funding. I have fought for funding for my community. Let's work together. So I can, I can completely understand the value of being feeling like there is being a part of this group, but I can also understand that oftentimes the big gay rainbow drapes so heavily over it that it would feel like maybe it's not welcoming to anyone who is not actually just attracted to someone of the opposite gender. What's the right way to talk to someone who's intersex? Is it appropriate at all to ask a stranger, are you intersex? Like how do we as someone who wants to do good respect someone?
0: Boy, um, there's sort of two aspects to this. There's certainly um, some ideas around courtesy and etiquette we'll get into. But um, the other sort of like big part of this is um, just talking about language mm. because in a medical setting, you might only ever have access to a medical terms like a diagnosis. And obviously, to most people, they're not going to look at words like 5 uh, alpha reductase hydroxy androgen insensitivity syndrome, over-testicular, DSD, you know, Kleinfelter syndrome, MRKH. They're not going to look at that and go, oh, that's intersex. Yes. But then there's also like other terminology as intersex sort of like became more associated with the human rights movement and has some association with the queer rights movement. uh, There's been a push towards uh, this other terminology, DSD, which stands for disorder of sex development or differences in sex development, which we consider a very pathologizing term. Um, Like it's it's, some people prefer it because they want to keep themselves in the medical context and they don't want to be associated with um, like uh, um, uh, with queerness. There's some people who reject that term because, um, uh, you know, it's pathologizing, it's insulting. We don't want to think of ourselves as different or disordered. Mm. You know, we have this more neutral terminology that's getting more and more traction these days, variation in sex characteristics. So I, I would say that in Australia, uh, in terms of best practice language, you would use intersex or variation in sex characteristics unless you're talking to someone who uses different terminology for themselves. And um, uh, that goes triply so for hermaphrodite. Hermaphrodite sort of like a very much um, an emotionally loaded term these days. Mm. It has a lot of associations with, um, sort of like uh, the exoticization of our bodies, and so sort of like the uh, medicalization of our bodies. And it's it's quite a violent term, but it was also a term of diagnosis used at least into the '80s. And so, there's an older generation of intersex people who their only access to language is this word, hermaphrodite. So, yeah, like in terms of what language to use. Be aware that there's so much terminology and there's a lot of self-description in the community, but you can safely use intersex and VSC as sort of safe terms. In terms of etiquette, there's not really any appropriate time to ask someone if they're they're intersex. We do have some uh, resources on our website, um, ihra.org.au around data collection, but largely If you don't need to ask someone about their intersex status and um, you don't have any way to keep that information confidential, it's usually better just not to ask. Mm. But largely, if someone comes out to you as intersex, I think that there's a natural tendency towards curiosity. But unfortunately, uh, curiosity can put people into potentially unsafe situations. If I tell you my diagnosis and I actually very deliberately avoid talking about my diagnosis these days um, because I think it's important for intersex people to keep some privacy. Uh, If I tell you my diagnosis, I'm not only telling you about like what anatomy I had when I was young, but I'm also um, telling you like what what were the potential procedures I had as a child and what sort of violence I might have faced in my life and what sort of trauma I'm carrying. Mm. And those are really difficult things to confront. So I think it's sort of like, Always trust. Like, if someone comes out to you as intersex, always treat it as privileged information. Uh, Make sure that you keep uh, good, good, secure boundaries around that information. Like, ask questions about, you know, how open they want to be about this, and just like, don't probe for more information uh, unless like they're willing to volunteer that. Mm. Because at the end of the day.
1: Your curiosity is not more important than someone else's safety. I have got to say, (laughs) thank you. That's what I've got to say. Your knowledge and your passion, but also your vulnerability by bringing your own personality, your own personal story um, into these answers has just been incredibly valuable. I feel confident that I know a lot more now than I did an hour ago but specifically the way that you're able to articulate. Really, every single answer here has just been invaluable. Um, So thank you so much. The last question I'd like to kind of land on, and you have spoken about what activists, politicians are working on or working towards, but is there a cause or a law that Aussie allies should be aware of? Is there something in particular that intersex people are really focused on right now that if that other allies who hear this conversation who go wow i haven't done enough i don't know enough here's what i could do next
0: Ah uh, yes the bit of the podcast where we reach the call to action yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um honestly if if everyone listening to this uh, went and read the darlington statement uh which is available at darlington.org.au forward slash statement uh, if everyone went and read that, and if um, people were inclined to affirm it, that helps give us a stronger voice, and it will put you across all the issues that we're finding solutions to. Um, in terms of, so like uh, other things that are sort of like um, important to us, we have this uh, legislative process happening in the ACT. Uh, which is when well, once that produces legislation, we need this recreated across Australia in order to protect children from jurisdiction shopping. So, uh, this is legislation that will, um, basically, uh, will protect the informed consent of children and minors. And, uh, basically the thing that we don't want to happen is to produce this legislation in the ACT and for people to be able to go to New South Wales or Victoria, uh, to get surgery done anyway. Mm. Um, so, once we see that sort of legislative result, we need people who are willing to push for legislation in other jurisdictions. Um, otherwise, just keep pushing um, awareness. Uh, you know, Intersex Awareness Day is a great opportunity to start a conversation with someone. Go learn about our flag, uh, the yellow and purple, uh, and our pride colours. ERA will have a webinar on that day today. And we also run Yellow Tick training. So if you want to build competency in your workplace, we offer custom training packages, but also uh, once a month we offer a more public-facing intro to intersex where you can find out a lot more information about intersex variation.
1: Amazing. Amazing, amazing. Do not go open a new tab. I will make sure to put all of the links that we have discussed just now right below in the notes for this show. Thank you so much, Cody, for coming on. Thank you for uh, being vulnerable and for passing on all of your knowledge. This was very powerful. My absolute pleasure. Come Out Wherever You Are is presented by me, Sean Zepps. Our lovely producer is... Lindsey Grain. Our executive producer is... Lema Bakharia, And we can't forget our audio producer... Chris Marsh. That's it. See you next week.